Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about being a living sacrifice, or in other words, a sermon about living the Christian life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to give you some exciting news. Our church is back to gathering in Wilsonville on Sundays. For about five months, we were using a church building in Oregon City for our services. Thank you, Hope International, for your generosity and hospitality. While it was a good place for us, we've really missed meeting in the city where our church has its home base and where most of our people are, and we are incredibly glad to be back. For the next few months, we'll be meeting at Meridian Creek Middle School. If you live in our area, we would love for you to join us. We will do our best to make sure it is a safe and impactful gathering. And whether you live near us or not, we hope that you'll join us in thanking God for his continuous provision throughout the last year. He has given us a place to record or meet for services every single week, and we are so grateful for that. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning again. I thought I was proud to pastor this church, and then so many of you didn't raise your hands about unanswered prayers. Uh, and if you've been around for any amount of time, that you know I love Garth Brooks, one of the most influential people in my lives. My life. We're all, we're almost friends at this point. He doesn't know, but uh, uh, you know, uh, I. It's funny how a church can can take on you know characteristics of the pastor. That's a weird part of my life. Is that the organization just kind of follows my, you know, personality in some ways. That's, that's a strange deal. But when you first start as a pastor, there's, there's people left over that, that, that don't really like you uh, when you start. And, and we didn't have a ton of that, uh, but there was a little bit of that when I first started. People that didn't, you know, share my vision for church, uh, leaders that didn't share my vision for, for what we needed to become as a congregation. And, uh, and, and, and some of you have heard this story, but one of, the, one of the most important moments in my ministry was right at the beginning of uh, Rosemary, let's go. Uh, that's my niece, by the way. Uh, I like her a lot, even if she screams during my sermon. If you did that, I would feel differently. Um, but, uh, but Rosemary can get away with anything with me. Uh, and uh, it, it, this moment was, was so important for me. And we were, we were doing, you've heard this, some of you, if you've been around, but uh, but I you know, it's, it's just such an important moment in my life and connects with what I'm talking about today. Uh, we were doing small groups and we did this thing to open our small groups. It was like the first small group that we had when I was the pastor. And in all of our small groups, we did this thing where you would grab a rock. I had done it as a young adult group leader. You would get a rock out of a bag and these rocks would have words on them, biblical words, fruits of the spirit, things like that. And then, and then you would take some time and, and you know, just a, a minute or five or whatever, and, and you'd pray. And you'd, it wasn't like it's some magical deal, but you'd say, God, if, you know, magically you had given me this rock, then, you know, why? Why this rock for me? You know, you got faith, you got hope, you got peace, you got joy. And, and so it kind of forces people not to, like, think that, you know, God magically picked their rock for them out of this bag, but to just ask, you know, where, where in my life do I need more peace or whatever? And, and this is my rock that I, I drew out of the, the bag that day. You can see that it's faded. It's been years now, but uh, mine said love. And as I sat there and I, and I prayed, 
God revealed to me in quite you know a, a unique way for me, uh, basically that if I if He had magically given me the love rock, it's because I needed to focus not on dealing with people but on loving people. And, and as I started you know pastoring this church, and things were really bad in those days. Uh, some of you can remember we talked about some of that this morning. There were people that I had a a tendency just to want to deal with rather than to love. And man, I I, I talked about this in communion, but this year has been really hard, right? It's like so many issues where it doesn't feel like there's middle ground and either the other person's on your side or or they're wrong, right? I mean, they're just on your side or they're wrong. And, and And it's forced us, I think, this year not force this. It's caused us probably wrongly as Christians, and we'll talk about this, to, to really feel like it, at the best, the best we're doing is simply dealing with others and not really loving others. We're, we're trying to get along. We're trying to cooperate. We're trying not to bring things up at Thanksgiving so we take people off. We're not doing Thanksgiving together so that we don't take people off. You know, like, I mean, you can go down the line. And, and, and it's been a year where and I've, I've fallen into the trap where I just feel like I'm dealing with people, but that is not the call for those of us who are Christians, who believe in the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. The call for Christians is not to deal with people. It's not to manage relationships. It is to love, to unconditionally love. And I would say to love like Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this passage. I think uh, God is nice in that last week, if you missed this, you can go back and listen to it, but uh, the passage of scripture we looked at, Romans 13, 1 through 7, was about how we respond to government, which you can imagine, from my perspective, was super fun to preach on this year. I uh, really just was looking forward to that one. Uh, but then God comes back with, you know, it, it, as, as the Bible is being written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it, it comes back with this passage that that I think we'll all agree on. I, I don't think I'm going to talk you into anything, even if you're not a Christian. I don't think I'm probably going to really talk you into anything. Uh, but maybe we'll be reminded of something that I think is life-changing. And maybe we haven't done very well this year. And so here's what Paul says after talking about government. Verse 8, Romans 13, 8, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, last week, the the end of that section on government, Paul said, give to people whatever you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If you owe honor, honor, respect, respect. And now he he flips the switch and basically he's trying to connect these passages and his, his cool writing style. And he's saying, however, there is one debt that you should never fully pay off. It's kind of a a way of switching metaphors right here. There is one debt that you should never pay off. What is that debt? That is the debt to love. Now he uses this connection in the language, but actually this thing that we're going to look at today, starting in Romans 13, 8, is more connected to what Paul has been talking about in Romans 12. In Romans 12, you know, this whole series is based off Romans 12, 1, be a living sacrifice. And Paul moved from there. Said a big part of that is serving others. It's loving others. It's feeding your enemy. It's blessing those who persecute you. It's loving people, even, even when it is a very difficult thing to do. And so Paul brings us back to that topic with, you know, the government thing kind of almost being a parenthetical. And he says it again, there's one debt that must never be paid off for those of you who follow Jesus. Uh, the New International Commentary in the New Testament says, oh, no one anything except to love one another 
origin, if you know who that is, says, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love. A debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. I love that. I want to spend time today. This is what I I really want to do with much of our time today. I want to talk about love. And I think this is a a really important subject, and it's a subject that... uh, that I think needs to start with the definition. Now, one of my old students is here. I used to teach Jude right there in the back, and he's heard this definition probably like a hundred times now. But, but I think I've, I've come up with the greatest definition of love in the world, and some of you have heard it. I'm going to share it with you in a second. But it's built on 1 John 3.16. It's hard to define love, right? It's like defining beauty. Like, that's just like, what does that mean, right? I mean, what is, I mean, how do you define beauty? And love is similar, but in 1 John 3.16, we get this glimpse of really how it should should at least begin to be defined. And, and, and here's what John says as he writes it. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And a few years ago when I, when I hashed this out I, I, and kind of looked at the biblical idea of love as a whole, I came up with this definition. It rhymes and one of my proudest preaching moments, one of my very proudest preaching moments, years after I, I gave this definition to a student, uh, he was able to quote it on the spot without, so I want you to do the same. In four years when I say, how would I define love? You should be able to say this. Love is them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. Them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. There's three parts, I think, biblically to love. You can see them there. It's placing others above yourself. It is working for their good. And then it's all because of, love has a basis, really. It's the value that you see in another person. So it's value, it's focused on goodness, and it's sacrificial. These are the three components of love in the Bible. And and even if you just heard that and I stopped right there, you can kind of see how often our culture kind of thinks of love as maybe having one of those or two of those and and doesn't actually have all three of those, right? Like sometimes we just think of love and we'll talk a little bit more about this second. Love is just like really valuing another person, especially in a romantic relationship, right? Like I love you because I, I just think so highly of you. That's not love in and of itself. It's a part of love, but it's not love in and of itself because if there's no sacrifice and if you're not pushing for the good of another, then it's it's not really love. Now, here's, what, here's what's so cool. In, in, in the Bible, Greek speakers, uh, not just biblical Greek speakers, but Greek speakers in general, they had more words for love than we have. We have really one word that I think means love. Uh, and there's a lot, of, if you look up synonyms of love, it's like on, you know, synonyms.com or whatever. It's like, they're not even synonyms. Like, it's like infatuation. Like, say that to your spouse. I, infa- I am infatuated by you, right? Like, like this is, this is not love. But the, in the Bible, we see these, these different words. And, and often you maybe have heard the word agape before, and we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but often they're split up like in, in ways that maybe the authors didn't intended. But I think that these different words for love and the relationships that they're most often used with, they really help us to see that definition of love in action in different relationships. And also they help us to see uh, a picture of you know why we love and how we love and all those things. And so I think we have an image. I can't see the image at all, but hopefully it's it's come up there. Um, it's a drawback to this new building that we're in. Uh, but these these are the three kind of words that we have for love in the Bible. A love that's that's driven by 
friendship, like a friendly love. Philadelphia uh, is the city that, that's named after that word. Uh, you have romantic love, and then you have uh, parental love. These are the three three kinds of love, uh, three of the four kinds of love that we see in the Bible. And we see that my definition, what I, which I think is a biblical definition, play out in these relationships, right? Like a friend, right? C.S. Lewis, I think one of his great lines, he says, a friendship is started when you look at another person and you say, oh, you too. Uh, like, like, oh, we have this connection. And so often in friendship, what is it that we value? We value similarity with another person, whether they enjoy the same things that we enjoy, whether they like talking about and debating and thinking through the same things that we like talking about and debating through, whether they just end up at the same coffee shops or whatever. I've made friends that way right here in Starbucks. And so the, the value in friendship is just our similarities in a lot of ways. And so then we make some sacrifices in order to, to spur that person on. Like I, I will, you know, if you need help moving, I'll, I will sacrifice for your good. I will come and I'll help you move because you need a person. If you need a shoulder to cry on, you can cry on my shoulder. And then there's romantic love. We, we know how we value. You think the person's good looking, you know, you're like, oh, I value them because they're hot. Like that's, I mean, that's, I really value what they look like. And, and so they're valuable. And then that's so easy. I, especially at the beginning when we're falling in love, right? I will sacrifice everything for your good. You need a doormat? Like I'll lay down, right? Like, I mean, if that's what it takes to get the second date, this is, this is what I'm willing to do for you. That's so easy to see, right? You value the person because of, of their looks first, and then you meet them and you like the same movies or whatever, things that ultimately prove to be totally unimportant in your marriage. But like you value that and then, and then you sacrifice for their good. And then, and then, parental love, right? Like I think that we know, I mean, you, you see your kid and you just value them because they're yours either biologically or, or through adoption or another way. Uh, you, you see the potential of the future and it, you see that, that even I think a lot of parenting is that you see the value of the work you can do in them, right? Like you can help them grow up and do amazing things. Man, my kids hate this, but uh, a lot of nights when they're about to go to sleep, I look at them in the eyes and they hide under the blankets and I just look at them and, and talk about the great things that God has equipped them to do. Uh, Hudson, you are so, he's going to hate it right now. You are so brave and tough. He's closing his ears over there. You are so brave and tough and you have the ability to just make people laugh. And God is going to use that for big things. And Hazel, she's covering her ears now. Hazel, you are the most kind, sensitive caring person about others. If I had half of that care, I'd be a better pastor. And God is going to use that to, uh, for his glory as you help people. You can unplug your ears now, guys. And it's because I see, I can so clearly see the value in my children. And so we sacrifice for our kids for their good. We know that one of the most heinous evil things we see in society is when parents don't sacrifice for the good of their children, right? They just keep living their lives at the expense of their children's future and, you know, growth and all of those things. It's ugly because it's the opposite of love. These are our natural kind of loving tendencies as humanity. It's not like a Christian thing. We value friends. We value romantic partners. We value our children and therefore we sacrifice for their good. It's just common to man. 
And when it doesn't happen, we think that's gross. When, when, you know, a friend won't do anything for you, right? And like that, you stop, you stop being their friends. If they'll never make time for you, uh, then you're not ever going to be their friend. It's just going to, you're going to lose that over time. If, if you're in a marriage, right? When a person stops sacrificing it all and it's all about them, we know that's bad. And it leads often to divorce. And, and I've already talked about kids. But there's this fourth Greek word for love that maybe if you've grown up in church, you've heard, and it's this word agape. And, and often what happens with this word agape is that we say the difference between the other three loves and agape. This is a sermon I heard as a kid. You may have heard it as a kid too. The difference between these three loves and agape is that agape is unconditional. And by unconditional, we mean that no matter what the other person does to you, no matter how they act, you continue to love them. There may be something to that, but I actually don't think that's what separates this love, agape, from the other loves. I think what really separates agape from the other three loves is that it places value upon all people, no matter if they are our children or our friends or our romantic interests. It places the value in people inherently and not based on whatever connection we might have for them. Now, this word in the New Testament is unique because it's, it's like the main word that the writers of the New Testament use for love, but it's also, you know, primarily, maybe every time I didn't check this, but I almost said fact check it, but that's still such a buzz term right now. I didn't fact check this, so you can do that later. But I think it might be the only word that's used to demonstrate God's love for us. Don't quote me on that. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16 says, agape the world uh, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the love that God has for us. And I think what makes it unique from all these other things is, is think about it. Like, what does God value us for? There's no real reason, right? I mean, he's God in heaven. He was perfectly satisfied without creating humanity. He didn't need us. He could have just, you know, created us and done away with us and, and moved on. Like it wouldn't have changed his, you know, his enjoyment of life or however that looks like God needed nothing from us. We don't have anything in common with God. It's not like, oh yeah, those guys are into the same stuff as me, except for maybe how he created us, right? But we are his creation. I mean, we are his creation. And yet he demonstrated his own love for us in this, that he sent Christ Jesus to save sinners. He, he loved us anyway. And I think, I think that what separates agape from the other forms of love is that it is unconditional, but not in the sense that people can do anything to us, although that may be a sense, but that it should be applied to all people. God valued all of humanity, no matter how bad they had become. Jesus sacrificed for all of humanity, and it was for the good of all that would accept his gift of the cross. And so look, look, if, if you're, I don't know all of you, but if you're a Jesus follower, and you're going to say, I'm going to love like Jesus, then, then this takes away all excuses for why we would not love people. Because we don't value these people based on if they have commonalities, if they have the same politics as us, if they fall in the same category of fearing a virus or not fearing a virus, vaccine, not vaccine. It's not because of any of those things. It's because of their inherent value, which happened because God created 
people, every single person that you know in his image and his likeness. And so therefore all people matter. The creation story of the Bible and then the gospel story, they say that every person should be loved. Every person should have our agape, no matter if there are friends or our enemies, if there are children or somebody else's children that we can't stand, or if there are romantic interests or our ex-romantic interests, we should love all people because we follow a God, we serve a God, we love a God who demonstrated that to us. And if you don't know this gospel story, I mean, that's the story. This is the, the heart of everything we do as Christians is that we believe all people rejected God and became his enemies. Not because God wanted people to be his enemies, but because people chose to be his enemies. Pretty much flipped in the bird and said, we're, yeah, we're not going to do what you want us to do anymore. We're going to do exactly what we want. And, and, and despite what you've called us to do, despite what's best for us, we, we, have, we don't want a relationship with you. And God still then came down in the person of Jesus, lived a perfect life, and then died for each and every one of us. And this calls all people who would accept that gift to say, you know what? I will value each of you. I will sacrifice for those that God puts in front of me and it will all be for their good. You may know the story of, of the good Samaritan. This is Jesus teaching the same point. Jesus demonstrated this, but he taught this, right? If you don't know the story of the good Samaritan, it's a, it's about a guy that, you know, uh, just gets beat up, thrown to the side of the road. I'm gonna make a long parable shorter. Gets thrown to the side of the road. A couple of Jewish leaders walk by. And, and they just ignore him because they're busy and they don't want to get their hands dirty or whatever. And then the Samaritan, who was frankly like an enemy of the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, somebody they didn't like very much and the Samaritans didn't like them. And, he, and the Samaritan stops, cleans the guy up, takes him to a hotel. One of the most beautiful you know, and, and universally liked parables that Jesus tells, one of his great stories. And the point of it all is he looks at these people who he's talking to and says, who do you think was the neighbor? And it's like this guy. And it's this, the, the guy that served, the Samaritan, the one that they, they didn't like. And, the, and really Jesus changes with that parable and maybe some others. He changes the idea of, of who a neighbor is to the person right in front of you while calling you to love your neighbor. And so we don't love just the people who are like us, our fellow, uh, you know, the people of the same race, the people of the same nationality, the people who are, you know, in our close proximity as far as actually being our neighbors. We love the people that God has put right in front of us, regardless of whether they are like us or think like us or act like us or any of that. Now, this is different. This is unique in many ways to Christianity. And if you remember at the end of Romans 12, it's like, even love your enemies. But how can I love my enemies? They're my enemies. Well, you can love them by being a true reflection of Christ, by being a true follower of Christ, by remembering what Christ's love demonstrated. Love is them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. And as Christians, we are to offer that to everybody because we follow a God who valued all people. Now, there's another thing here that's really important and I think uh, needs to be said maybe more in our world today than, than any other time. And always in the Bible, love aims at a person's good. But here's the problem. Often we want to define that good, but that's, that's not loving. We don't get to define what is good, nor do we even allow other people to define what is good for them in many cases. And, and, and maybe sometimes we can get caught up in the trap. Maybe this is for you. I don't know. I feel like this is 
Maybe there's one or two people that just need to hear this. When we truly love, it isn't that we let culture or personal preference, yours or theirs, or even people's short-term happiness define what the good is in your relationship with them. We as Christian people must define the good by what God has defined as good in Scripture. Uh, let me, I mean, so like, let me give you some examples. Yeah, I said love is helping people move. I think that's pretty universally okay. I think God would want you to do that. But, but this is where it gets weirder kind of in our society. Love is telling people what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. And see where we can get this really mixed up in our culture is we think that love is just pleasing other people. And so it's whatever they want to hear and not what they need to hear. I look back on my life and when people have said really hard things to me that I didn't want to hear, it really bothered me at the time. But when I look back on it through the lens of, you know, decades, I say, wait, that person loved me enough to tell me the truth when I didn't like to hear it. And when frankly, it could have cost them my friendship. It could have made me reject them. Say, if that's how you feel, I'm moving on with my life. We're not going to hang out anymore. Whatever. Neither of the times I'm thinking of in my head right now, did that happen? But they, they sacrificed. They were willing to lose a friendship in order to push me towards good in a biblical sense, not in the sense that Chad, you know, could keep doing whatever he felt like he was doing or anything like that. I mean, another one is love is sharing the gospel, telling people the story of Jesus, even when it might make them uncomfortable, even when, when you know, you're not sure if they're ready to hear it. And, and we can confuse that, right? Like I would talk to them about Jesus stuff, but I don't want to offend them. I want to be loving, but that's not real love. Love is sharing the gospel, even if it makes another person uncomfortable. I mean, this is what Paul gets at, I think, next, uh, because he says, look, love, and I've defined love, it's, it's pushing towards another's good, but listen to Romans 13, eight through nine. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting there, right? Because sometimes we can think of commands as really restrictive, but in some ways, Paul shows us that the commands show us what it looks like to love another person. Have you ever been around somebody who, who is talking about love, but then not living it out at all? And you might say, well, how can we know that? How can we know that, that despite what they look like and how they're acting, you know, in, in this moment, how do we know? How do we even know that it's not love? And, and what Paul is kind of getting at here is, Frankly, because it's not in line with the, the stated will of God in Scripture. It's not in line with the stated will of God in Scripture. Now, there's a couple of ideas about this passage. One, you know, my, Paul might be simply showing that love is central to fulfilling the law. And the other is that uh, maybe, this maybe people argue about this, uh, that perfectly loving would be to perfectly fulfill the law. Either way, it makes both important, love and God's written word, because we're not going to perfectly love while we're on this earth. I, I, if any of you can do that, I'll value you. We can be best friends right now, but, uh, but we just can't do that, right? And so the law remains important. The written word of God remains important in that regard, even though we're trying to love. But when we love perfectly, on the other side of that, it means that we're 
that we are living out the written will of God. And if ever we say, well, I am, I'm, I'm going to do this to you and it's loving, but we're doing something that the Bible has said not to do. It's not love. We're just making that up. We're pretending to love at that point. Listen to Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I wasn't going to read that last part, but I think it's a really important line given our society today. But, but here, here, here's Paul's point. You know, if you want to fulfill the law, if you want to live it all out, you have to love and you have to love intensely. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a Jesus idea. Jesus says this in Luke 12, 28 through 31 and other places. One of the teachers, or we read this story, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. We are called to love people like we love ourselves. And if we do that, then we will fulfill the commands of God in scripture. But also at the same time, we must look at our love, our effort to love through the lens of the commands of scripture. It has to go both ways. I think of, I've seen this, this is such a weird example, but like People, this is a new thing. It's I don't know why this was the example that came to my head. I'm embarrassed now that I'm in front of you. I, I, but like, have you seen this kind of movement to like open marriages? Have you ever heard any people like, you know, like news story pops up and they're talking about why they decided to have open marriages? Like we just loved each other so much that, that we thought, you know, having other partners was going to, you know, be the right decision. And, and, and you know, man, don't you just know intuitively that one of those people really didn't feel loved when the other one suggested it the first time. But what scripture says is that we cannot call this love no matter what people say, because it's not in line with what God has called us to do. Uh, One of the commands that Paul talks about here, adultery. It's not that way. Uh, And so we must filter our efforts to love through the commands and the guidance of the Bible, but also as we love, we should see that we are beginning to fulfill those those things even better in our lives. One author said it this way, love has taken center stage away from the law, but it hasn't made it obsolete because the law helps us love in many ways. Now at the same time, Paul through the book of Romans, I won't rehash this, but he's talked about the law uh, a lot. Uh, and, and most of the time it's really negative. It reveals sin. It condemns sinners. It defines sin as a transgression. It brings wrath. It increased transgression. It has no power to save. But at the same time, Paul has said, Romans six fifteen that we are not lawless. And so we must balance these things. We must not be people of the law. They're just like law, law, law. But instead we must be people who are striving to love, but in a way that is in line with, with what God has, has told us about interaction with other people. Now, what makes the law something to be fulfilled given all that, right? I mean, why would we, why would we want to fulfill the law if, if the law, you know, has been seen so negatively in the book of Romans? I think the next verse answers it. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does not harm. I think that's important to just pause because there is, 
I mean, I just, whenever I think of that, I think of like abusive boyfriends, right? And it's like, well, I love her so much that I'm going to, you know, beat her and not let her do anything anymore. This is not love. And the Bible has no place for this. And, and, and sometimes people do use scriptures pulled out of context in order to, to say, I'm loving you by oppressing you. And this is not, this is not biblical. Love does no harm. But the last point, hence it eschatology. And by that, I mean, the last point points to the idea of of the coming of Jesus ushered in a new era in history, an era where we are no longer under the law, but we are now under Christ. And as it says, love is the fulfillment of the law. It reminds us that Jesus came not to remove the law, but to fulfill it. And in large part, that means that Jesus came to usher in a new era where we are driven by love and not by the letter of the law. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Probably love, probably love that fulfills the law, love that fulfills the law. And I think we just need to keep these two, you know, we can't just chuck the, all the scriptures out and say, whatever, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, we must, we must see that they are there in order that we can love people fully. I mean, if somebody lies to you and says they lied to you because they loved you, that's not true. It's not true. Let me, I, I said this example and people got mad at me, I feel like a few weeks ago, but my whole marriage, I've taken the stance that if Bryn asked me if an outfit looks good, I will tell her yes or no, and I will be truthful with it. Now that's, I know that sounds horrible. We got some newlyweds over here. Uh, and and uh, I mean, good luck the first time you do it, ma'am. But, um, uh, but, but, here, but here's the reality. 12 years into marriage, Bryn knows when an outfit looks good and she walks out because I've already given it. Yeah, I th- it's great. You look good. It's, it's a good looking outfit. Uh, if I had lied to her all these years and said, well, I'm just being loving because I'm going to say like every outfit looks good or whatever. 12 years in, she couldn't have trusted it, right? She's like, do I look good or do I not look good? I know it's a dumb example, but I think it's an important example because often we think that love is just making people feel good. But if it's not in line with the law and the ways of God as stated in scripture, then ultimately, and I've seen this so many times in my life, ultimately it will prove to be the unloving choice, even if it doesn't feel like the unloving choice in the moment. It will not feel like it always in the moment, but ultimately it will prove to be the loving choice. So, so here's, you know, what Paul, what Paul gets at. I mean, the conclusion of it is let no debt remain except the debt of love. And this means that we have a never ending obligation to love. And scripturally speaking, this means that we have a never ending obligation to love everybody that God puts in front of us in our path. Now, we should, I could say we love the whole world or whatever. But that's sometimes meaningless, right? We say that as Christians. I love everybody. But it's like, that's, you know, like, well, do we actually? I don't know. But, but really, we are called to love our neighbors, the people God has put in our midst. We must do this unconditionally. That means no matter what they've done, but we must also do it unconditionally in my new way of describing it to you. And that is no matter if we see an earthly value in them, if we have shared interests or shared ideas or, you know, commonalities, that's the doesn't matter. We value them because God created them in his image and he showed us that he loved them enough to die for their sins. And then we love in a way that fulfills the law, recognizing the love is the culmination of the law. 
And we love like we love ourselves. We love like we love ourselves. Uh, all of this is to say, I think, I think if Paul could sum it up for you, it, it's, it's just love like Christ loves you. And as Christians, it's so easy to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. But I'll love like him when it's convenient to me. I'll love like him when those people are like me. I'll love like them when things are a little less tense in our culture. I'll love like him if it doesn't mean it's going to cost me power. I'll love like him when I want to. But that is not the call. We are called to have, to remain in the debt of love. And we love no matter what, no matter who, no matter when, no matter where. We just love. I would finish by saying, can you imagine? (laughs) Can you just imagine the difference that we would make as Christians? And if you're not a Christian, can you imagine how much better you would like Christians if each and every one of us who who are Jesus followers said, I will love like Christ. We could absolutely change the world. And I hope that this church, this church will be known first and foremost by our love. I hope you'll join me in being part of that.